Hi, and welcome to Theology for Millennials podcast. My name is Eric Marvin, and I just happen to be a millennial, and I'm excited about discussing with you all the different theological topics and doctrines uh, over the course of this podcast. So stay tuned. Thank you again for tuning in to Theology for Millennials. It's Eric Marvin again, and I am very excited about uh, today's podcast. Uh, It is something that I believe is very relevant to the discussions that we've already started, and it is something that uh, I believe that a lot of people, although they might not think about this often, it's an always an interesting subject to think about when we finally do uh, kind of confront this question. And the question is really simple for today is we're going to ask this question, what is sin? Uh, sin is kind of that dirty word that's used in church, uh, often referred to uh, or referring to the thing that we do or the things I, I really should say that we do that displace God or that we don't like or that we think are evil. And so uh, we're going to discuss that today. Uh, is that all that it is or is there something a little bit more to it? And then Really, the meat of this is what does the Bible have to say about sin? That's really what I want to get to today. I want to, as always, begin to develop a, um, uh, a foundation here, a theology based on truth, not just on a feeling. Uh, so we're trying to develop an absolute, or I guess really not develop one. We're trying to discover an absolute found in Scripture on the doctrine of sin. So uh, just to recap really quick on what, what I talked about in my last podcast, in my last episode. I talked about how humanity exists to glorify, praise, and worship God, and that originally we were designed in such a way that we could accomplish that purpose simply by existing. Uh, we didn't have to adhere to certain standards. We didn't have to live up to certain, uh, you know, a, a certain bar or anything like that. We could please God just by existing and by being a reflection of Him. And we talked about how, you know, obvi- there's obviously that that doesn't happen today. You know, for a lot of people, simply existing is uh, just the worst thing ever because <laughs> because life stinks, right? There's so much uh, bad stuff happening in life and happening to people, and we would never think that we could actually fulfill our purpose simply by doing that. Or, you know, even more specifically, that we can never receive joy, true joy, by doing that. And so we acknowledged, or I acknowledged, uh, and I hope that you would see this as well, that uh, there's there's something in this world that has broken everything, and there's something about this world that's just not working, and it's not bringing joy uh, to us as humans. And so that thing, I believe, from our Christian perspective, that thing that is breaking this relationship and that is kind of messing this whole world up is something that started with sin, and that's what has broken this relationship. So today... Uh, the relationship between us and our Creator. So today we're going to talk about what it actually is, like like what does sin mean? So w- what I would do is if I was, let's say if I was sitting here and you were across the table from me and we were having a cup of coffee together, if I was to start this discussion with you, I would ask you some basic questions. I would ask you first, what typically comes to mind when you think of sin? What are some of those first thoughts? What are some of those first images that pop in your head when that word is said? Um, for me, uh, traditionally, I, I've always thought of sin as uh, there was a little phrase at a church I worked at that we used to use to describe sin to kids. And it was anything we think, say, or do that makes God unhappy. And that was something that was uh, kind of stuck with me. And that was something that I held to even before that. But that kind of put 
put words to the thoughts about sin that I had already had. And a lot for most people, that's basically what they think sin is. It's just anything we think, say, or do, or really it's more anything we do that makes God unhappy. Uh, images of, you know, or, or thoughts of things like murder, stealing, lying, cheating, those kind of things all kind of come to a person's mind when you begin to think of, of sin. Here'd be the second question I would ask. So after we kind of have that discussion, what comes to your mind when you think of that? I would ask you this. If you had a giant scale, it, like if you had, you know, and I'm talking like a scale, like, you know, how you can put a weight, weighted something on one side and put something else on the other side to see which thing weighs more. If you had one of those big enough to hold all of the world's good on one side and all of the world's evil on the other side, how would it balance out? Which one would weigh more? And I'd be interested to see what you say, because most people that I uh, ask this question, they think about it for a while. They, you know, right off the bat, usually a lot of evil comes to mind, a lot of bad things in the world. Uh, you know, even just right now, literally as I'm recording this, we're in the middle of something pretty bad in the world. The coronavirus uh, has really, um, you know, caused a lot of panic, a lot of fear. It's also taken the lives of thousands of people across the world. And, you know, you look at that and go, oh my gosh, this, this world is so bad. It really is. But then as you begin to think about it for a while, you begin to think of all the good. Uh, in response to this, you know, tragedy, we see a lot of people stepping up and doing a lot of good for their fellow man. And so you kind of begin to think about it. And usually everyone kind of lands on, they, they would say that the world has a lot more good in it than evil. And the scale would balance in favor of the world's good whereas the world's evil would be um, not as much. And so it's an interesting couple of questions to begin to think about. So I want you just to think about those. Hopefully that kind of has gotten your brain kind of uh, uh, turning there a little bit to think about sin and, and what typically comes to mind and how we view it through, the, through a global perspective. Okay, so we're going to come back to some questions like that here in a minute. But before we do that, uh, I want to quickly go through a word study because the word sin itself is kind of a weird word. Like we don't really use that world, that word in our normal everyday lives. We use that word only when we're kind of in a religious setting, when we're sitting in church or listening to a sermon or reading a book, a spiritual book um, about Christianity. You don't really hear the word sin all that often anywhere else other than through the church. So we need to kind of understand what does that word mean? Where do we get that word? What does that word come from? And it's really quite interesting. So here's a little bit of a word study on the, on the word sin in the Bible. In the Old Testament, which if you're, if you're not aware of this, the Old Testament was uh, written in Hebrew. Uh, and so it's a very difficult language to read, uh, but it's very rich language, uh, completely different alphabet from ours. But they have eight different words in the word in the Hebrew language that represent uh, kind of our word sin. Okay, so they have a lot of different words to use. The two most common words, though, if you were to do a study on this, the two most common words used. The number one is a word called chata. Uh, I think I'm saying it correctly. So if I if anyone out there can speak Hebrew and I'm butchering it, I apologize. But the first word is chata, and this is basically what it means is missing the right mark and hitting the wrong mark, okay? Uh, there's an active and a passive action involved in that. It, it's a two-sided thing. You have to think of, a lot of times people, when they think of sin, they only think of half of that. They think, well, sin just means that you missed the mark or you did something wrong. 
you know, sometimes that's a passive, you know, I, I didn't mean to do that, but as a result of what I did, something bad happened. That's kind of a passive force. Whereas the the definition of this Hebrew word ha- also has an active force in it as well, where, yeah, I missed that. I missed the mark. I didn't I didn't live up to a certain standard, but I also hit the wrong standard. I did something that that was not right. I missed the target. And so there's an active and a passive uh, action in that. Some key verses to think about. I'm not going to read these, but if you wanted to go back and read these, I think it'd be really good for you to get an understanding of sin. So these are some of the verses where hata appears, and that's Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, Judges chapter 20, verse 16, and Proverbs chapter 8, verse 36, and chapter 19, verse 2. And so you could go back and read those, and you'll see that word there. The second most used word in Hebrew is, I believe it's pronounced rah, uh, it's it, in in English. It's basically just R A. That that's kind of the sound it makes, and the basic meaning of this word uh, is to break up or to ruin. All right, to to mess up, to break up, or to ruin. So it's often translated into English as the word wicked, uh, or messed up, or corrupted. Th- th- those are the kind. Of, that's kind of the idea, right? Some key verses for this one: Genesis chapter three, verse five. And also Genesis chapter 38, verse 7, and Judges chapter 11, verses 27. That's where you're going to see that word pop up a couple of times. So in Hebrew, uh, if we take the two most popular words used for sin, put them together, this is kind of what we see. We see that sin is missing the right mark, hitting the wrong mark, and breaking up or ruining uh, the relationship that we have between us and our Creator, uh, between God. Okay. Now, if you go to the New Testament, right, that that starts in Matthew and goes all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation. The Old Testament starts in Genesis, goes to Malachi. The New Testament, though, is written primarily in Greek, and they have 12 words, a dozen words uh, that could be used uh, or could be translated into our word sin. Okay. Really interesting. The one, though, that is most commonly used uh, more than any other of the other ones is the word, the Greek word hamartia. Again, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, any Greek scholars out there, if you uh, can call me out on that, if I'm mispronouncing that, please let me know. But hamartia is the Greek word for sin. Now, it it's the same idea of missing the mark and uh, you know also hitting the wrong mark, but it really kind of gives you this idea that sin is kind of a force, that sin is kind of, um, a, there's a power to it. Uh, so here's some verses for you to begin to look at, and kind of you can see this word uh, popping up in these verses. Matthew chapter 1, verses 21. John chapter 1, verses 29. Acts chapter 2, verses 38. And Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And what's interesting about this word is it's often used in the context um, of our need for salvation. And I find that really interesting. So a lot of times this word is used but it's used in conjunction with our need for salvation or our need for, uh, for our, a Savior, for someone to basically pay the price for the sin or to make up for our sin, for our missing the mark and hitting the wrong mark. So really interesting word study there. Uh, it's a really um, deep dive if you really want to go into this subject uh, on a deeper level. Just look at the word sin because, uh, I mean, there's 20 different words, eight of them in Hebrew, 12 of them in Greek, 20 different words are used for our word, for, for the word we use for sin. And it's really fascinating. So uh, I want to give you a comprehensive, based on all that, here's a comprehensive 
definition for the word sin. And this is kind of what we're going to use going forward. This is going to be the foundation of today's uh, discussion, okay? And it, this uh, definition comes from Wayne Grudem's uh, book, Systematic Theology. I'm going to be referring to this book often. It's a really good book on theology, so I'd grab that too if you want to read that. But here's his definition. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, and nature. I'm going to repeat that. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, and nature. So that is the definition that we see uh, from uh, Dr. Grudem's book, Systematic Theology. And it really does sum everything up. Now, what you see in that definition is, uh, remember I mentioned earlier that if, if you know, hatam means missing the mark and hitting the wrong mark, the mark based on that definition is, is the moral law of God. Now you have to understand that that is different than the written law of God. Uh, we oftentimes, uh, we, when we hear about the written law of God, you know, he, he actually, God wrote down a law. You know, we have something called the Mosaic law, which is uh, recorded in the book of Exodus. Uh, and we know that that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it was very, very specific rules and standards and things for the people of Israel. Now, when I say moral law of God, I'm not referring to the written or the Mosaic law of God. Uh, because here's here's why. If if the definition of sin is the only time we miss that mark of hitting uh, of following God's written law, then that means for a couple thousand years before that law was given to Moses, how would any of the any humans how would they how would they have sinned? If there was no law, if there was no standard, if there was no mark to hit, then how would they have missed it if it wasn't there? And so I'm referring to a moral law of God, and that is what I believe to be uh, the, the law of God that's kind of imprinted on the heart and mind of every human being that's ever walked on the planet. Uh, this, is, this is why, to, to kind of give you a good example of this, and I wish I had a much better grasp on all of this. Again, I, I don't pretend to be some super uh, impressive theologian that has every single answer, but, but here's basically what I understand this to be. It's the reason why you don't have to really explain to the vast majority of people, you don't have to explain why murder is wrong. You don't really have to go tell someone and convince someone that killing another human being is the wrong thing to do. That is something that is imprinted in our hearts and in our minds, and we, we at a basic fundamental level, we all know that that's, that, that, that's wrong. And sin is a failure to conform to that moral law of God, that law that has been in, in place, that law that has been in effect since he created everything. And so when we fail to conform to it and act attitude and nature, we are sinning, we are missing the mark, and we are hitting another mark. So let's break that down real quick. What does that mean, act, attitude, and nature? How do we fail or how do we sin in that way? Well, failing to conform an act or sinning out in, in action is probably the most common understanding of sin. This is basically, um, th this is a, a behavioral thing, right? This is a physical action that does not align with God's moral laws. The examples of this would be stealing something that doesn't belong to you, lying about something with your mouth, using words to, to deceive someone, adultery, uh, sleeping with someone who is not your wife or participating in, you know, uh, things like pornography and things like that. Murder, obviously killing another human being. Not cool. Not a good thing to do. Slander, um, 
you know, saying bad things about someone else's, you know, dragging someone else through the mud with your words. Those are physical words coming, you know, you know, words coming out of your physical mouth. Uh, that, that is a, uh, failure to conform an act violence, uh, against other people. Those are all examples of failing to conform to God's moral law and act. There's a second part to it as well. That is failing to conform an attitude. This is more of an unseen sin. This is something that is a little bit more secretive, and we can kind of hide it in the depths of our mind. But if you look, even if you look at the Ten Commandments, when God even wrote down His law, it's really interesting, right? When He wrote down the law to the to the people of Israel, uh, you know, the most common are the ones that we know of are the the ones the Ten Commandments, right? We kind of are familiar with that. Well, there's one of the commandments says, "Do not covet." Well, well, how can you tell if someone's coveting or not? Because coveting, uh, covetousness, all that it is, is wanting something that is not yours. It's a desire to have what you do not have. And basically looking at your neighbor and so badly wanting that, that you'd be willing to do anything for it. Well, how do you measure that? Someone could be coveting right now in front of you about you, and you would never even know it because it's a sin of attitude. It's a failure to conform an attitude. The results of this are, are uh, hidden sins of the heart and the head. These are things that we really don't see uh, being um, externally, they're not externally manifested in actions, okay? So examples of this would be pride, hatred, lust, jealousy, selfishness, covetousness, the list could go on and on. But those are the kind of things that we don't really see them. Because we don't really see people doing, you know, you don't do lust, you don't do jealousy. Now, you might do something because you're jealous, but jealousy typically isn't something you do with your hands or your words or, you know, your feet or anything like that. It's something that's happening in your mind. So those are the two that we uh, are most familiar with when it comes to sin, but there's another part of sin that is really interesting. And this is something that, this is a, this is going to speak to a doctrine of sin that a lot of people might not agree with, and that this is really the thing that will rub people the wrong way. This is what creates tension in the room when you start having this discussion. Because almost everyone will admit, yeah, I've done something wrong. I've acted out in sin before. And yeah, I've had the wrong attitude before. I'll admit to that as well. But this next part, nature, is the one that we don't like to admit. And this is the very fact that our inner character, this is what Grudem says in his book. He says, our very nature, the internal character that is the essence of who we are, is sinful. This means, to give you an example of this, that's what, what, what this means is that if I was to go home tonight and ask my wife, who's a doctor, to say, Amanda, could you please put me in a medically induced coma to the point where I can no longer move and I can no longer think. I have no brain function and I have no physical function. What that means is that even if I was in a, that kind of state, I would still be considered a sinner in the eyes of God. I would still be looked at by him as a sinner purely because my nature is sinful. That is the part of sin that nobody wants to admit and that's the that's the hardest to grasp a hold of and it's the hardest to accept. That we at our very core, that it's soaked into every fiber of who we are, is a sinful nature. Now, where does that come from? All right, so we can all admit, yeah, have we done things wrong? I've acted out in sin before. Yeah, I've done that. Have we had the wrong attitudes? Yeah, we all can admit that. We can own up to that. But those are things we've chosen to do. A sin nature is not something we have chosen. It is something we are born with. And so what does that mean and how does that, how does that happen? How do we know that to be true? Well, I first, real quick, uh, from the New Testament, 
there's a really interesting passage that I want to read to you real quick, uh, because Paul kind of commented on this in the letter to the church in Ephesus. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3, uh, and I'll also read verse 4 as well, because that's kind of the result. The, the, well, I'll, I'll explain why I'm going to read verse 4 here in a minute. But this is what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says. It says, we too all, talking about, he's including himself, Paul is, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. When he says them, he's referring to sinners. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And by nature, we were children under wrath. By our very nature, we were children under wrath, as the others were also. Now, verse four is very interesting. But God, who is abundant in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. That's, that's a really interesting, that we were dead. And even though we're physically alive, our nature is dead in trespasses. And that is not by any choice we have made. It is, it is something we are born into. And then he says, by grace, you are saved. Wow. Really, really powerful verse. So where does all that come from? Where is that doctrine being developed? Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, this is where we were last week. I want to read to you just a few verses in Genesis uh, to look at that really begin to show uh, where this doctrine of sin nature comes from. All right. So I'm, if you hear me flipping through pages, I'm turning through my Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 uh, through 17, this is actually God talking to man after he's created him. And he gives him this, this law. This is what he says. Uh, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden. Verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the very first command that God gives Adam. Uh, and really, this is the command that Adam, we understand him to be as he's our representative, right? He is uh, standing in our place uh, and in the place of all humanity here. And God is commanding him, uh, do not eat of this tree. You have the choice to eat of all of the other trees in the world, but you just can't eat this one tree. Now, a lot of people think well, that's a silly story. What's so special about the tree? Why a tree? You know, why, why can't he eat from that? What, what's the big deal? Well, here's, the, here's the, the big deal. You cannot have love if the object of your love cannot choose to love you back. True love does not exist unless there is a choice involved. Think about that for a second. If you force another person to love you, if you physically force them to love you, are they truly loving you back? And, in, and is that love truly unconditional? It's not. It really is not. Uh, no one, I, no one listening to this, I think, would would argue with me that if you forced another person, if you were a man or a woman, doesn't matter, but if you forced another person to love you and marry you and spend the rest of their life with you, I don't think anyone would say, "Oh yeah, that other person truly loves them because they're being forced to love." That that's ridiculous. That makes no logical sense whatsoever. We know that true love comes through choice and the ability to say yes and for us to make our own choice. So when God created us, he didn't create robots. He didn't create these, um, 
you know, these little representations of himself to love him because they were forced to love him. In order for us to truly love uh, God, God had to give us the absolute gift of free will. And we had to be able to choose to love him. Otherwise, love would not exist. And how loving would he, would he actually be if he didn't give us that choice in the first place? So this really, the, the choice here to obey or disobey, the tree doesn't matter. It could have been anything. It could have been, uh, hey, Adam, you can swim in all these other rivers and lakes except that one puddle over there. You can't go swimming in there. That's the one puddle I, I won't let you swim in. You, uh, even if it was something as silly as, you know, Adam, you can walk in all of this grass over here, but this little field, I've marked it off. You're not allowed to go in that one. Okay, he could, that, that doesn't matter. The, the actual command itself of what he was not allowed to do is, is relative. The point is, is that Adam had to choose to obey or disobey his creator. And that was really a choice of whether or not he was going to love and trust God or whether he was going to disobey and distrust and, and rebel against God. And so we see that that's the reason for that, okay? Now, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see what happens as a result of this. It says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some, and this is important, by the way, remember this verse right here. She also gave some to her husband who was with her the whole time and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves to cover it. That is unbelievable. I mean, it, it really is unbelievable to think about how a simple temptation, you know, Satan, and we're, we'll talk more about Satan in a later episode, but Satan here uh, questions the, the goodness of God, questions God's motives, and, and he tempts, he doesn't force, if you ever notice that, he doesn't force Adam and Eve to sin. He can't. In the same way today, he doesn't force anyone to sin today. But he can tempt, and he twists, and he manipulates, and he makes things look as uh, in a way that they are not. And it's really what he does here. And he, he twists the words of God, and he manipulates the mind of both Adam and Eve. And he gets them to uh, uh, basically think that they can be their own God and they start to buy into this temptation. And then through no uh, force of anyone else other than through their own choice, Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and to disobey him. They chose not to love him. They chose themselves. They put themselves over God. Think about that. Remember, Satan said, if you eat this, you will have wisdom and, and you will be like God. And Adam and Eve said, we want to be like God. We, we, don't, we, we don't want to be underneath him. We don't want to place ourselves under him. We want to be on his level. And they chose to sin. And everyone who's listening to this, we, that is the same thing we do every single day. We, it, this is why I believe that 
we really have a control issue, I believe, currently in kind of in American culture, right? We want to control, we want to be in control, we want to be in power, we want to have uh, uh, the ability to make things the way we want them to be. And I think that's what Adam and Eve also struggled with. They wanted to be in control, they wanted to be like God, and they thought that this would be the path for them doing that. And in pursuing that path, they chose to place themselves above their creator. And in the same in the same way today, we every day choose to put ourselves above our creator and, and to be our own gods of our own, to, to basically be the, you know, the captains of our own ship, if you will. And instead of letting God be the one to lead us and to direct us. So this, at this point right now, this is where we find the doctrine of what we call, the, the word is sometimes used, or the phrase really, is original sin. And a lot of times when I ask, what is, what is original sin to folks? Um, they usually, a lot of times, will point to that particular moment in time and say, well, that was the original sin. That's partly true. That really is. That is partly true. That, that is when all of this started. But original sin is kind of, uh, there's a, a Greek uh, verb that's called aorist. And it's an interesting verb because it basically gives the idea that something has started in the past and then carried through in the future. Uh, even though this part of the Bible was not written in Greek, that same idea is kind of true here, where this is what started our sinful nature. This was the thing that sparked it, that, that kicked it off. And ever since then, every single person that has been born has been born with a sinful nature, a failure to conform in their very nature. And this is why you don't have to teach anyone to be evil, right? You don't have to teach anyone to be bad or to disobey or to try to control situations or to be their own God. Uh, th- this, I, I am a father to two unbelievably beautiful girls. Uh, Emma is about to be two years old and Maddie is about to be two months old. And I'll tell you right now, I have not had to teach any of them how to throw fits. I have not I don't have to teach them how to try to manipulate. I don't have to teach them uh, how to lie. I'll even tell you a quick story that's quite funny, actually. But in it, it, when you really look at it and take a step back, uh, it'll show you just this is how we are. Na- this is our natural state of being currently. So Emma comes out. She is uh, supposed to be in bed. Uh, she was uh, her mom, Amanda, had put her to bed. And I had come home af- a little bit after that. And when I was uh, standing at the fridge, which I often do, looking for a snack or two, I was standing there, and all of a sudden I hear the kind of the you know the pitter patter of footsteps coming across our tile floor, and I close the fridge door, and sure enough, Emma is there with in all you know in her PJs, and it's way past her bedtime, and she looks at me and goes, "Good morning, Daddy," and <laughs> I could just tell right away in her mind. It was like she thought, if I say good morning, maybe he'll think it's morning and I can stay up. I mean, it, I, honestly, I had to really hold in the laughter because it, it was very funny, to be honest. But at the same time, I also knew that you know, she was saying something that was totally inaccurate. Now, maybe she was mistaken. Maybe. That, that, that's true. Or maybe she really thought that I would let her stay up if, I, if she could convince me that it was morning. Uh, I, I think that maybe they, maybe that kids are pretty that, you know, a, a lot of kids are that smart. So uh, anyway, so this is nature, right? This is ingrained in us. It's soaked into our fibers. It's soaked into what makes us us. And all, usually the reaction to that is this, is, well, that's unfair. 
Eric, that, that's not fair at all. Why would God do that? Well, here's something else. And this is going to, and again, I'm kind of getting into some future stuff that I want to talk about. So this is getting into some different doctrines. But do you know what's, do you know what's also unfair? What's also unfair is that, that through one act of kindness and generosity, we can enter back into that perfect relationship with our Father, with our Creator. That's also unfair. It's unfair that one person had to take the weight of all of our sin from every human being, from all, uh, from all time, from all history, every person that has ever walked on this planet Earth, that one person had to withstand the weight and the penalty of all that sin for all of us. That is also unfair. As we conclude today, because I've gone a little bit over time, I tried to keep these things about 30 minutes. I want to read to you real quick uh, from the gospel, or excuse me, it's not the gospel, from the letter uh, to the Roman church. This is Paul writing. He writes this letter to Rome. And in chapter 5, this is what he says. In chapter 5, verses 18 to 19, I want you to listen to these verses. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Again, that's it's unfair. How come because Adam sinned, I am born with a sin nature? You're right. It is unfair. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for everyone. That is also unfair. We have done nothing to deserve that. Justification is this idea of, it's basically just if I had never sinned in the first place. It's a, it's a complete wiping of the slate, right? That we are completely clean in the eyes of God. We are righteous now. We are clothed in Jesus' righteousness, and he sees us as that. And that is un- we've done nothing to deserve that. That is completely unfair for Jesus in the same way as unfair for us maybe to have received that sin nature. Verse 19 says, For just as through one man disobedience, one, or excuse me, for just as through one man's disobedience, the many, that's all of us, were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many, that's us, will be made righteous. That's really cool. It's amazing. So sin, yeah, it's difficult. It's a hard subject to talk about. I think we all can admit that an act and attitude, we've all done it, we've all chosen to do it. But in nature, it's a hard thing to admit. To admit that we are inherently evil at our core is something that none of us want to do. It's something that some people never will do. But if we can truly begin to humble ourselves and look to God and say, God, I have sinned and I have chosen to sin, but more than that, I am a sinner. I, I am not just one who sins. I am a sinner at my core, at the core of who I am. And I need you. And I know that through one man's disobedience, I became a sinner, but I can be righteous because of one man's obedience to you. So that is what I want to leave you with today that we can find the answers to sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are going to talk more about that later on. 
that is, again, we're getting into doctrines of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We're getting into uh, a lot of other things as well. So I really wanted to stick to the doctrine of sin today, uh, but I'm excited for where we're going to go here in the future. Um, I'm not quite sure yet exactly what I'm going to be talking about next. Uh, I have some stuff on my mind. Uh, of course, salvation is a big one, but I also really want to get into the characteristics and the attributes of God. Uh, and, the, and, and being able to get into the question of the existence of God. And th- those are all things that are really fun to talk about. And so I plan on getting into all of them here in future episodes. So I don't have a timeline for you exactly of how all that will play out, but I hope that you decide to come back and tune in and listen to Theology for Millennials. And until then, this is Eric. Have a great day.